0: Now, I imagine most of us, if you're anything like me, you like stories with happy endings. Who doesn't like stories with happy endings? At the end of the story, it wraps up, and everybody's happy, things go well. And as far as I know, there's a certain type of movie that always has happy endings, or nearly always, Hallmark Christmas movies. (laughs) Um, If you've ever seen Hallmark Christmas movies... They always kind of end up with a happy ending, Uh, particularly, you know, they get Christmas spirit again, which is oh so important to have that Christmas spirit. Uh, They're able to build a snowman together. Um, The hot chocolate is flowing. Um, So if you've seen Hallmark Christmas movies, you know they always end in happy endings. Now, if you're a person who says, I don't care for those Hallmark Christmas movies, I, I understand that. But I have a little tip for you we found you can get these Hallmark Christmas movie bingo cards. And so there's cards, and they have spots on there for drinking hot chocolate, uh, buying a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot, um, interrupted first kiss, all those things. And it's amazing how every movie has those elements in it. So if you're particularly a husband in this room, and your wife asks you to watch one of those, print out a bingo card and you'll find your enjoyment increases significantly. Um, We did that this year, I can tell you from experience. And suddenly, my family uh, enjoyed it quite a bit more. Now, at the end of all these Hallmark Christmas movies, um, the man and the woman get together. It's a... romance, and then the assumption at the end is that they are going to live a happily ever after, that they will eventually get married and live a happily ever after because they are MFEO, made for each other, and um, have found their soulmate, and it's just, you know, what it's supposed to be. Now, these movies are, can be kind of fun, um, or fun to make fun of sometimes, um, but certainly we would love to see that all marriages are happily ever after. And that's, that's kind of what's hoped for when the marriage happens. Certainly no one goes into a marriage at a wedding ceremony and says, yeah, you know, we give this about five, ten years. Or, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. No, the, the hope is that it is, uh, that it does go well. And it continues to improve. And that there is happily, happy marriages. But we have to admit that that's not always the case. Uh, we live in the real world. We don't live in a Hallmark movie. And all marriages don't have happily ever afters, and, and sometimes there are challenges in marriages. Especially, I mean, it's easy to point to the world, first of all, right? And say, oh yeah, look at the divorce rate right now, look how bad it is. And it's, it's true. A lot more marriages end in divorce. But I think we need to look at ourselves a lot of times and say, how are we doing in that respect? Um, it's not something that's talked about on a Sunday morning at church. Hey, let me tell you about my struggles in marriage. But the reality is, I know at, at our church, there are marriages that have struggles that are going through hard times. So that may be you. Or it may be you that say, you know, our marriage is going well, but it can be better. And certainly when we see in scripture in Ephesians 5 of the marriage is supposed to be a model of Christ in the church that the husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church, and the church to submit to her husband and respect him as the church does to Christ. Well, certainly none of us can say that we're doing that perfectly. So all of us can improve in our marriage, even if your marriage is going well. So we all can do better in this. And that's why I want to start this series, Secrets to a Successful Marriage. So it'll be an occasional series. We're going to continue through 1 Thessalonians with Brad, but occasionally I'll have an opportunity to come to you with this and talk about how you can have a joyful marriage or or a happy marriage. I might use those words because a successful marriage, first and foremost, is one that pleases the Lord. But there will be an element of joy to it. You can't say that, oh, my marriage pleases the Lord, but it is torture. Well, (laughs) no, something's going wrong there. So I may say joyful marriage or happy marriage, but the idea is successful marriage. One, all that God designed it to be. Now, some of you in here are singles, and I, you may be thinking, oh, fantastic, uh, a series on marriage. I am not married. Why uh, are we here, and why am I listening to this? Well, the reality is, number one, uh, there's a possibility you may one day get married if you're single, and you can learn these things now. Better to learn them now than in the middle of marriage when things start going wrong. So it can be helpful or you may be one you may not get married, but you can come alongside and counsel some married couples if they're going through things. Just point them back to Scripture. But there'll be truths in here that will be helpful to you as a single person. And I'll try to make a point of bringing out that application each time. I know I will today, but uh, but there will be help for you as a single person in this as well. So today we're just going to look at the first Point or the first lesson in how to have a successful marriage or secrets of a successful marriage. And today we're going to look at the first secret is worship the same God. So that's the sermon title for today, worship the same God. So what do I mean by this? Everybody worships something. Everybody, in in a sense, is a worshiper because what is most important to you is the thing you worship, that you make sacrifices for, that you are willing to set other things aside for. And when people reject the true and living God, they don't believe in nothing. They exchange that for something else. And we are reminded of that in Romans 1. Just flip there real quick, Romans 1, starting in verse 20. And we're reminded that those who deny God always exchange for something else. So in Romans chapter one verse twenty, he says, "For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So what Paul is saying here to the Romans is, look, people are exchanging worship of the true God for something else. And in our day and age, it's unlikely, at least in our Western culture, to see man-made idols. But there is a worship Things that are most important to people other than God. And often in our society, it's perhaps wealth or influence, high social standing, or just personal happiness. And so for most people, their God is themselves. Now, how does this apply to marriage? To say that everyone worships a God and a successful marriage will worship, you'll worship the same God and the true God. The reality is if two people are worshiping different gods, one is worshiping the God of self and the other is worshiping the true God, they're going different directions. One is becoming more and more like Christ as he's seeking to please God and the other one is not going that direction and there's going to be an eventual separation. And if you do worship the same true God, there's going to be fundamental commonalities between the two of you. And those fundamental commonalities are going to make the biggest difference in your marriage. If you want to have a successful marriage, make sure you're both worshiping the true God. You see, every Christian can have unity with any other Christian. We see throughout the New Testament commands to unity. And the reasons that are given for this unity is because of the things we share in common as Christians. And certainly if that's true... If you can have unity with any other Christian and your spouse is a Christian, well, you should be able to have unity there too. So what I'm saying is this, when you worship the same God as your husband or wife, the God revealed in scripture, you can have a successful marriage because you share the most important realities in common. If you worship the same God, you will share the most important realities in common with your spouse. And that's going to make a huge difference. And I think the most important and most fundamental way to have a successful marriage is that you're both worshiping the same God. Well, what I want to do for the next few minutes is look at seven foundational realities that are true of every believing couple. If both husband and wife believe after God, I want to point out seven foundational realities that are going to be true of both of you. And as we look at these, there there could be more. I'm listing out seven, and hopefully I'll get through all seven. But you'll see that as a believer, and your spouse a believer, you're going to share these things in common and the difference it'll make. So the first one is this. First foundational reality of believing couples is you have the same identity. You have the same identity. And what I mean by that is you have both embraced the gospel. So every believer has become a Christian in the same way. There's not 10 ways to become a Christian. There's really only one way to become a Christian. And we see that in Acts 4.12 is one place. Of course, we can go all over Scripture uh, to point that out. But in Acts 4.12, we're reminded this. There is salvation... In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way to become a Christian, only one way to know God, and that is through the truth of the gospel. So if you have married a believer, you have the same identity and you believe the same gospel truths. You both believe that there is a perfect holy God, Righteous in all his ways. You both believe that you have fallen short of that. You both know that you have not lived up to that perfect standard that God has set and that you deserve his punishment, an everlasting, eternal punishment in hell. But you also believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, the perfect man, the perfect God came. And he lived the perfect life that we did not. And he died on the cross to bear the penalty, the punishment for our sins. And if you're a believer, you believe that Christ rose from the dead, that the grave did not hold him, and that he rose on the third day and ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And if you're a believer, you have put your faith in him and you have committed your life to him, forsaken your sin, and have begun to live for him, lived a life of repentance. So if you're a believing couple, you share all these truths in common. That's a great thing. That's an amazing thing. And sometimes we think, boy, there are so many differences between me and my wife or me and my husband. But you share some essential truths in common. And because you hold these truths in common, though you may not agree on everything, you have a foundation of gospel truth that you can build off of. So if you want a successful marriage, remember this, you have the same identity as your believing spouse. And that that's going to make a difference, how you handle life and how, when you go through things. So the first essential reality is that you have the same identity. The second for believing couples, you share the same power. You share the same power. Now what do I mean by that? By that, I mean you are both indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to flip over to Acts. I'm going to be kind of all over. We're Acts chapter 4. I want to just point out a few verses here. In the future, I hope to stay in one passage longer, but today I just wanted to look at a number of places. But Ephesians 4, the first six verses here, Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through and in all, overall and through all and in all. In the book of Ephesians, uh, like every other New Testament epistle, the the issue of unity is addressed. We see that it's again and again in the New Testament. And after explaining some rather deep theology in the first three chapters, Paul turns the corner here in chapter four and gives a therefore in verse one, and he's going to start giving a series of exhortations. On because these things are true, therefore, how should we live? We need to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then as he goes to explain what that means, the first thing he looks to is our relationship with one another. And as he points out that we're to live in humility and gentleness and patience, he then gives in verses 4 to 6 the reason this can be possible. The reason it's possible And must happen is because there's an essential unity. One body and one spirit, among other things. And the one spirit, he's saying there's one Holy Spirit that dwells inside of each believer. Therefore, there can be unity. And if you and your spouse are believing, you also have that one Holy Spirit that's within you, that is giving you the power to forsake sin that is working in you to bring conviction and draw you towards Christ-likeness. If you want to have a successful marriage, you need to worship the same God so you can have the same Holy Spirit living within you, the same one that is striving towards Christ-likeness. And because you both have the Holy Spirit living within you, there's hope. There's always going to be hope. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are not bound to sin you can forsake sin because the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to do so. So I want to encourage you, if you say, our marriage is struggling, is there any hope for us? Well, as a believer, there's, there's always hope because of the Holy Spirit inside. The third foundational reality I want to point out is that you have the same purpose. A believing husband and a believing wife have the same purpose. And the purpose is this, you're both striving to please Christ. That's true of every Christian. You are striving to please Christ. And certainly it overlaps what we've discussed. But as a believer, your reason for living is to honor Christ in all you do. And let's look quickly in Romans 14. In Romans 14, uh, Romans... um, You know, similar to Ephesians, gives a lot of theology, and then in the last four chapters, gives a lot of application. Here it says in Romans 14, just verses five to eight here One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So the context... Uh, of this verse is the struggles for unity that was going on uh, between the Roman believers and just um, the differences in some conscience issues, uh, whether to eat this meat, um, whether to observe certain days like the Sabbath. And there were some disagreements there. And the whole uh, of chapter 14 of Romans, Paul addresses these, this uh, in, a, in a number of arguments, a number of ways. But one of the ways in these verses we see is that what Paul reminds them of is that no matter what issues you may have in conscience on these different things, you worship the same Lord. Everything you do is to please the Lord. And because of that commonality, these other differences should take second place and be able to be dealt with. Well, for a believing couple, that's true as well, isn't it? If you are both seeking after Christ— and issues come up, differences of opinion, you should be able to deal with those. Because remember, we're serving the same Lord here. We're both serving Christ, so we can work out those other issues. So that is an essential reality of believing couples that will help you to have a successful marriage. And so if you are married to another believer, remember that. Remember you share that in common that you're both serving to please the Lord. So you should be able to work through this. You're on the same team, both working towards the same goal. So already we have seen as couples who worship the same God, they have the same identity, they have the same power, they have the same purpose. And number four, you have the same manual for living. And there's a lot of places we could go uh, to talk about that, but... I thought a good place is Psalm. Psalms uh, 119. Psalm 119 is uh, just a great chapter, the whole chapter, uh, talking about Scripture. But verses 105 and 106, and this will be familiar to you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Verses 105 106 there. And that is what a believer says, isn't it? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We have, that, this is our manual for living. When there's a question on what to do in life, when there's uncertainty, how do we make this decision? You can go with your spouse and say, well, let's, this is where we start. We start right here in God's word. And what an amazing blessing that is. For those who don't know Christ, Frankly, I'm surprised how many marriages do work in this world. Um, when some may have an idea from one uh, philosopher of uh, life is meaningless, and the other one, well, life, you could find happiness in this way. Well, where do they go to when decisions are made? And certainly, a lot of compromises are made, and praise God that, that even um, in our world, more marriages stay together. But as believers how great it is to both be able to turn to the pages of God's Word. He has revealed to us our manual for living. And we share that with our spouse. And as you come across maybe very difficult situations, maybe it's a parent who is in the last stages of life. All right, how do we care for our parent? How do we do this? Well, let's look to Scripture. What principles are there? You have a child that's born with special needs. All right, how do we deal with this? Let's look to God's Word. And what a blessing that is, to have that, to be able to share that same manual for living. So that's the fourth common reality of believers. The fifth is this. You have the same response to sin. As believers, you have the same response to sin, and and that is this. You both hate it and both regularly repent from it. That's true of believers, that their response to sin is hating it and repenting of it on a regular basis. Salvation is not, as I hope you all know, hey, it's getting me out of hell, and now I can live however I want. We know that's, that's not what it is. It is a hatred towards sin, because we know what it did to Christ. We know of our Savior's suffering on the cross, and so we don't Continue to live in it. Romans 6 reminds us of this truth. And in Romans 6, verses 8 to 13, let me just um, remind you of those. Paul writes, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul reminds them, you're no longer a slave to sin. As a Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. It's great. We are freed from sin's power. It's not master over us. But we do at times present our members as instruments of unrighteousness. Sometimes we willingly walk into sin. And as a Christian, you fight against that. You are putting sin to death. And if you're married to a believing spouse, you're both doing that and you're becoming more Christ like all the time. And when you both are putting sin to death and becoming more Christ like, your chances of a successful marriage are going to rise exponentially. Because here's the deal the, the problems that come in marriage are because of sin. There it is. That's the big secret it's sin. Say, no, it's differences. It's, it's these things. No, it's, it's sin. It comes back to sin. And if you are repenting of sin on a regular basis, and your spouse is as well, well, those sin issues are become, going to become less and less as you grow in likeness. It's also great to know as you repent of your sin, you know God's forgiveness, don't you? And a believer who knows how God forgives is so much more knowledgeable and able to forgive others. I need my wife's forgiveness all the time for things that I do, sinful things I do. Because she has been forgiven, she knows how to forgive me as well. And praise God that I have a believing wife. And because of that, our marriage is so much more successful than it ever would have been if that were not true. So that was number five. Same response to sin. Number six, you have the same view on marriage. As two Christians who are married, you have the same view on marriage, and what is that? You both recognize that marriage is a covenant that lasts for life. And what a blessing it is to have both know that marriage lasts for life. In Matthew 19 verses three to six, Jesus is asked. By the Pharisees, and they tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let no man separate a believing couple are both committed to the fact that marriage is a lifelong commitment and that the word divorce it doesn't come up it's not an option boy does that make things more clear as you're working through marriage issues issues in life well this option's off the table good now we just we're going to work on this together we're going to go through this so if you want to have a successful marriage, share that truth with your spouse, that you both always go through the problem together, not ever looking for a way out of marriage. You're having the same view on marriage. So we've looked at six essential realities that are common to those who worship the same God, and they were have the same identity, had the same power, have the same purpose. You have the same manual for living, you have the same response to sin, and you have the same view on marriage. Let me give you one more, and then I want to spend a good amount of time just looking through the implications of all these. You have the same future hope. You have the same future hope, and what is that? Well, of course, it's that you both look to heaven for your reward. And First Peter 1 talks about this, and one of my favorite passages there. In First Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. As a believer, you know this life is not the end. As a believer, you know that whatever difficulty you face, whatever tragedy or calamity that comes into your lives, it's temporary in the fact that there is a future of heaven waiting for you. And that will inform your decisions. That will inform your response emotionally as well. Whatever happens In your marriage, whether it be difficulties inside or difficulties that you're facing from outside forces that are happening to you, if you know that your reward is certain in heaven and you remind each other of that truth, you can live with confidence and trust in the Lord. So you look at these seven realities, and if you And your spouse are both believing you have these things in common. And you can rejoice in that fact. And you, again, may face problems, but you can look back at these truths. So what application is there to these truths? Number one, you can have a successful marriage. You can. As two believers, you can have a successful marriage. If any two believers can live in unity, certainly you and your believing spouse can live in unity. As you each grow in Christian maturity, sins like pride and selfishness will continue to be put to death. Christ-likeness will grow and harmony can be achieved. Now that said, it doesn't automatically happen. You two get married and you're believers, you have to pursue righteousness, don't you? Uh, One of the quotes I enjoy, and I believe it was J.I. Packer, said, You don't drift towards holiness. You don't drift. You don't, without effort, start becoming more holy. You don't drift towards holiness. You work at it. And as believers in marriage, you have to strive towards holiness. You have to be putting sin to death. Sins like selfishness. That's a big one in marriage. If, If you're not married yet, believe me. My own selfishness has caused problems. And I'm sure everyone could say the same. Your own laziness. It's these sin issues that cause the problems. And if you are a believer, you are putting those things to death. And therefore, your marriage can be one that's joyful. You can have a much happier marriage. So, that, so the second point of application, not only is it possible, but it comes from pursuing Christ. A successful marriage comes from pursuing Christ. Christ. It's not a matter of trips, uh, tricks and tips. It's like, oh, I'll give you a little trick on how to have a successful marriage. Um, just do these clever things. No, it comes back to fundamental truths on what you believe and what is important to you. And the best way to improve your marriage, first and foremost, is to start seeking Christ and living more like him. Spend time in the Word. Study Christ. Know Him. Emulate Him. Be like Him in every way that you can. Because as you become more like Christ and those sins get put to death, the problems will be less. Now some say in the world, and and there's truth to this, some say that the problems come because men and women are different. Oh, we're different. Even the book of... uh, What are men are from Mars, women are from Venus, kind of captured that idea. Uh, Men and women are different, and that's the reason for marriage problems. Um, They communicate differently. They have different desires, uh, different ways of expressing love, different ways of thinking, and that's the problem with marriage. Now, those things are true. We do have differences. Men and women are different, and praise God for that. I'm glad my wife is not just like me. Um, and certainly, yeah, my wife is glad she's not like me (laughs) as well. Um, there, there are differences and guys are generally more apt to want to do competitive things, right? And, and seek and accomplish things again, generally speaking, and women generally speaking are more relational and enjoy the process, not just the results. There are differences. I even know, uh, this, couple that I'm meeting with, and I'll change their names so you don't know who I'm talking about, um, but my son, will call him Kian, Uh and daughter-in-law, will call her Rosanna. Um, they have differences. Uh, Kian um, <laughs> enjoys video games, things like this, and you know, you can win, you can play this. Rosanna... Not so much. She'll enjoy something like puzzles and just the process of that. And uh, now Kian and Rosanna, <laughs> Kian and Rosanna. Okay, saying that right? People just fictional names for my son and daughter-in-law. Um, they have these differences, sure, but is that a problem? Is that a problem? You and your spouse have differences. Is that a pro- No, that's not the problem. The problem is how you respond to that. How do you respond to the differences in how you do things? Do you respond in love, in thankfulness, in patience and tolerance towards each other? Do you respond in humility? The problems come when you're like, we're going to do what I want to do. It's in <laughs> selfishness. The problems come when it's saying, hey, that's, not worthwhile what you're doing, or what you like, or that's how you made a decision? Well, that's that's dumb. There's the problem is how do you respond to those differences, not the differences themselves. And if you respond in a Christ-like way, then those differences aren't problems. They're things to rejoice in, they're things to celebrate together. So, how do you have a better marriage? If you worship the same God and are seeking to be like Christ, you will have a better and better marriage as the days, months, and years go forward. Now, I mentioned, well, what about singles? You keep talking about better marriage. I'm single here. Um, How does this apply to me? Well, hopefully it's pretty clear already. Marry someone who's a believer. Marry someone who's a Christian so that you do share these things in common. We don't have to try and proof text and say, oh, look at this, uh, unequally yoked. Yeah, you, you can go there, and there's application there. You can go to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, married in the Lord, and that's true. There's, you can proof text there as well. But the whole reality of the Christian life says don't marry an unbeliever. The whole reality of what it looks like to be a Christian and having a successful marriage is, well, don't I want to believe the most important things, the same as my spouse? Well, hopefully you do. Hopefully you want to have a successful marriage. So as a single, really think, is this person following after the Lord? Not that he signed a card that said, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, but do you see that person pursuing after Christ? If you do that, then all these things we talked about today will be realities that you will share in common. And the most important things in life and how you make decisions will be the same so you can have a joyful marriage. And now I want to answer a couple of questions that would come up. One, what if my spouse is unbelieving? And certainly that, uh, that is often the case. And what do you do in that? Is there any hope for a marriage in which one's a believer and one's an unbeliever? And let me say very clearly: yes, there is hope. There is hope. Do not give up on that marriage. I'm still here in First Peter, uh, start of First Peter, chapter three. Peter addresses this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Peter is telling his readers, particularly the wives, remain submissive to your unbelieving husbands, since that's the God-given role of the wife, and continue to do so. In a chaste and respectful way, because by doing so, you may lead your husband to Christ. If you have an unbelieving spouse, continue to live out Christ, because that husband or that wife may come to know Christ by how you live. And so there is hope in that regard. And certainly, you can do what you're responsible before the Lord as well. Now, this isn't the only place. 1 Corinthians 7 Paul addresses this with the Corinthian believers as well. In 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12 through 16. And in this chapter, Paul's talking a lot about marriage and a lot about um, divorce, marriage, remarriage. And he says, starts in verse 12, says this, But to the rest, I say, not the Lord he's going to get to this issue that we're talking about of uh, unbelieving and believing. Any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean. But now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. If the brother or sister, uh, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? So there's a lot in this passage. We won't obviously go into it in detail, but we know this. If you are married to an unbelieving spouse, You don't divorce. That's not like, okay, unbeliever, I'm divorcing. It says, no, that is not what you do. You stay. You stay together. And why do you do this? It says the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. An unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. This doesn't mean because you're a Christian, your unbelieving spouse becomes a Christian. But you bring certainly a level of God's blessing in your house. You are an example and bring an influence in that house that would not be there. Remember, sanctification is set apart or separate. You are separate for some of the corruption in this world by the way you live in that household. And not only for your unbelieving spouse, but for the children as well. And provide to them a level of God's blessing of obedience that would not otherwise be there. And finally, Paul says that, of course, if the unbelieving one deserts you, then there is a provision to let that person go. But if the person stays, you can be that godly example, and God will give you grace in that. Yes, how wonderful it is to have a believing spouse, but if that is not your case, God will give you the grace through that and can use you in an amazing way. I used to be um, interning here at the STM program years ago, and they had Pastor of the Day. That's where you would receive phone calls uh, just from people calling in. And half the calls I got were marriage issues. I mean, there's other questions, people that try and stump you with some Bible trivia or <laughs> real hard theological questions. Um, but when it's counseling questions, I tell you, over half the calls I got were marriage issues. And most of those was an, a believer married to an unbeliever and saying, just in tears, what do I do? My, my husband wants to do this. My wife wants to do this. And that's not what God would want us to do. How do I deal with this? And of course, there wasn't, well, in these cases that I spoke with, there wasn't grounds for divorce. It's like, no, you be an example in that household. And we would pray together and just talk through how to use God's wisdom to handle those situations. And God gives, gives you grace in that. But if you are married to a believer, just know you don't go through that same difficulty. And so when you face other difficulties, realize, hey, look at this. We're both believers in Christ. We can rejoice. We can, we can go through this and we can work this out. Because those—that's the most important and foundational truth to having a successful marriage. But maybe, and finally, the question is: Well, what if my spouse is a believer, but boy isn't growing in Christ, and the source of all our marriage problems is my spouse, even if it's a believer? Well, first is this: uh, You're probably not perfect in your own right. So if you think all your problems are your spouse, um, not likely the case, but, but oftentimes um, it may be the case that your spouse is causing issues. Pray for them. Pray, oh, pray for them, sure. That's always the cop-out answer. No, prayer means we're going before the sovereign God of the universe who can control every living thing. Prayer is huge. Pray for them, and then obviously be an example of Christ-likeness. Be the difference in your marriage. Don't always be like, well, it's my spouse's issue. No, it's what are what are you doing to lead your spouse to be more Christ-like by your own example? And you are responsible for the Lord on how you live, right? And ultimately your reward will come from God. But for those who do have believing couples, I want to tell you there is hope. You share the most important things in come with your spouse, and you can have a joyful marriage. And we will talk in future uh, lessons in this series on other uh, just clear exhortations of Scripture that if we follow, and we'll get really practical, if we follow those things, your marriage will be one of joy because you are handling things the way God would want them to be handled. And you have His pleasure on you, and, and His ways work best, right? God designed marriage. He's the one that brought together man and woman for marriage. So he knows how this works. So we'll be looking at that and going through that uh, down the road as we talk more about this. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can celebrate in so many things because... We are Christians because we are followers of you. Lord, we thank you that we have these common realities that we can always go back to and and trust in you and working out the other issues that come up in life because uh, we're both seeking you. Each one of us who knows you is seeking you and becoming more like Christ. So Lord, we pray that that would be the case in our lives, that each one of us, would be putting away sin, would be filling our minds with your word on a daily basis, knowing that by doing so, Lord, we not only are pleasing you, but you bless us in our marriage relationships as well. Lord, as we look forward to hearing from your word the second hour and receiving communion together, Lord, we pray that... um, You were honored in that time, and we rejoice in the celebration of Christ this day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.